We're doing a four-part series on the heart of Christianity. What's it all about? When you strip it right back, what is Christianity unvarnished, unpainted, and unplugged? And we find that the essence of Christianity is a message. It's called the gospel. And this word gospel means means news, good news, great news, the best news. And so the gospel is a news report. It's a report about Jesus Christ and what he has done. Now, sometimes you hear Christians talking about how Jesus has changed their lives. And that's great, but that is not the gospel. It's an effect of it. The gospel itself is a news report about Jesus, about his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension when he went to be with God the Father. Now, we learn very early on in in the Bible that the gospel is not just for one nation or one people group. It is for everyone. It is for Jews and non-Jews. It is for people in the Middle East and Europeans. It is for Africans and Americans and Australians and everybody else. It is for the common people and for the elite. It is for the educated and for the ordinary people who don't have five grades A star to C at GCSE. The good news is for everyone. So as we read the book of Acts, which is the story of the first years of Christianity, we see the gospel being presented to different people. Last week we saw the gospel being presented in a synagogue, a Jewish place of worship, an audience of Jewish believers, people who knew their Bibles. So that week... The gospel presentation was full of Bible and quotes and the history of Israel. And we thought about how the gospel relates to religion. Next week, we're going to take a trip to Athens. And we will see the gospel presented to the cultural and intellectual elite, the philosophers and the thinkers in the city of ideas. But today, we're looking at the gospel on the streets. Today, we are in Lystra. And the people in Lystra are the common people of the Roman world. Their houses are very small with wood chip paper on the wall. They're not devout Jews and they're not philosophers. They're just ordinary people who follow the religions of the Roman Empire. So this week we see an encounter of the gospel with pagans. Pagans, which originally meant people from the country. Acts chapter 14 has the first recorded sermon to pagans. Now why should this be of any interest to you here today, you are asking? It is relevant to every single one of us here because we do not live in a monochrome city. We live in an international city with a wonderful diversity of peoples and beliefs. Isn't that glorious? This week my parents were here, it was my birthday. I managed to spread the feasting over two days. On Thursday, we had lunch at Abdi's in Moss Side, Claremont Road, and ate some of the finest lamb I have ever tasted. Somalian lamb. And at times, when all the men in there were talking at once, and they were all men, except my mum, you could have closed your eyes and thought that you were in East Africa. The next day, we had lunch at Azuma in Hume, and I had one of the finest chicken dishes I've ever tasted. And there were times when you could have closed your eyes and thought that you were in Beijing. What a wonderful thing that is. And with this glorious diversity of peoples comes a great plurality of belief systems. 
We don't live in a bubble where everybody shares the same assumptions. We are not all wasps. That stands for white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. We're not all wasps either. So here's the question that our context throws up. How do you relate the different religions and belief systems? How do you, how do you figure them out? How do you relate them together? Now, one answer that is sometimes given is an ancient story of the blind men and the elephant. Once upon a time, there lived six blind men in a village. One day, the villagers told them, hey, there's an elephant in the village today. Now, they had no idea what an elephant was, so they decided, even though we won't be able to see it, let's go and feel it anyway. So all of them went to where the elephant was, and every one of them touched the elephant. And the first one said, hey, the elephant's like a pillar, because he's holding onto a leg. Oh, no, said the second man, it's like a rope, because he's hanging onto the tail. Oh, no, said the third, it's like a thick branch of a tree because he's touching the trunk. The fourth man said, it's like a big hand fan, because he's touching the ear. The fifth replied, no, no, it's more like a huge wall, because he had his stomach, hands on the stomach of the elephant. And the final man said, it's actually more like a solid pipe, because he was holding on to the tusk for dear life. And then they began to argue about the elephant, and every one of them insisted that he was right. And it looked like they were getting agitated. And then a wise man passed by, and he saw this. And he stopped, and he asked them, what's the matter? And they said, we can't agree as to what the elephant is like. And each one of them told him what they thought. And then the wise man calmly explained to them, all of you are right. The reason every one of you is telling it differently is because each one of you touched a different part of the elephant. So actually, the elephant has all of those features. Oh, they said. And there was no more fighting. And everyone was happy because they were all right. Now, that story is sometimes told as a way of understanding the different religions. But let me ask you, friends, is that a satisfying way to relate the different religions and beliefs? I want to suggest that it isn't. There are at least two big problems with this charming story. The first one is that it is reductive. Now on the surface, all religions have a few things in common. Some of them, they all have some kind of texts or sacred books, scriptures. They all have some concept of salvation, how you can be saved, that kind of thing. But the more deeply you understand different faiths, the more you realise how totally different they all are. How could you possibly say that Buddhism and Islam are two versions of the same thing. They're completely different, all down the line. So the story doesn't really do justice to the facts. The second problem is that it is patronising. Notice that there is one person who can see the whole picture. It's the wise man. He calmly explains that you're all right, and he calms them down. Calm down, dear. But who is the wise man? He must be the person who is not committed to any one religion. He's the relativist. So the main point of the story is not that all the blind men are right, but that the wise man is right. He alone sees the whole picture. He alone has the truth. And his truth explains all the others. Now that doesn't, doesn't work. 
Now, in Acts chapter 14, the first recorded sermon of pagans, we see how the gospel, the good news report about Jesus, relates to another belief system. And we find that it is not, it doesn't end up being very British. It's not live and let live, you have your truth, I have mine, we're all just holding on to different parts of the elephant. This is an encounter uh, in which some controversial claims are made. And today we're going to hear some things that are naturally offensive to us. Two claims. One, we are spiritually deformed. And two, we are spiritually accountable. Two claims that come out of this story. We're spiritually deformed and we're spiritually accountable. Firstly, we are spiritually deformed. Now, how do you think of your own spirituality? How would you describe yourself? What kind of word would you choose to to describe your spiritual condition? The Bible is not very flattering to us. It says we're all deformed. Now, I chose this word carefully. As many of you know, one of my sons was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis at 14 months. By the age of 14 months, he already had erosive bone damage to most of his joints. His feet were particularly bad. A doctor's letter describing his feet used this phrase. It has become increasingly evident that he has a midfoot growth deformity and a restriction to movement that has affected his gait. Now I mention this so that you know I'm no stranger to deformity and disability in our family and I'm not using this language carelessly. Deformed means misshapen distorted. And the Bible tells us that we're all naturally deformed when it comes to spiritual things. What this means is that you may have the face of an angel and the body of a supermodel, but spiritually you are deformed, deformed, distorted, bent out of shape, unable to walk straight and see clearly. Do you believe that? Here's how it comes out in that passage that uh, the ladies read. I'm going to flick back a few slides here so you can see it. In Acts chapter 14, in verse 7, Paul and Barnabas discover a plot. Somebody, their guys are planning to stone them. So they, they leg it off to an area called Lyconia. And what do they do? Wherever they go, they preach the gospel. There it is in verse 7. They continue to preach the gospel. They explain the news report about Jesus. And in verse 8, a man is listening intently. And he's sitting down because he's lame and he's never walked even from birth. And as Paul is speaking, the man hears about Jesus and he has faith. Look at that, it is in verse 9. He has faith in Jesus. And his faith is so great that he actually ends up being healed. This sometimes happens when the gospel crosses into a new culture. It's God's way sometimes of showing powerfully... That he's at work. It doesn't happen all the time. We can't promise it and hold healing meetings. But God still is powerful and can heal people when he wants to. God stepped in and did a miraculous healing. And this man jumped to his feet and began to walk. Now on one level, what this is doing is putting Paul, the speaker, firmly in a sequence with Peter and Jesus. Jesus famously healed a lame man. And Peter did the same thing in Acts chapter 3. He heals a lame man in the name of Jesus. So now Paul does it. And it's a kind of subtle way of showing us that 
He's carrying on the ministry of Jesus, extending it to new territory. This is a bit like the divine kite mark, stamp of approval. But notice the reaction of these people. Verse 11, when the crowd see what Paul had done, they start shouting out in their own language, the gods have come down to us in human form. And they then reinterpret what has just happened in terms of their own belief system. Now, they're correct to see that something supernatural just happened. They know this man. Most of them probably knew that he's crippled. He's never walked. He just sits there all day begging. And now he's healed. There's no other way to view it. This is supernatural. It is amazing. This man didn't have a hurty knee. No, he's really lame. He's crippled. Only God could do this. But they completely ignore the message that explained the healing. The man himself had understood the message, believed the gospel. But the rest of the crowd sees on one bit of divine evidence and they twist it round to fit their own ideas. That is deformed. They decide that Barnabas must be Zeus, maybe because he was older. And they decide that Paul must be Hermes, not because he has a handbag, but because he's the chief speaker. Hermes was the messenger of the gods. And they make plans for a worship service. Somebody runs off and gets an acoustic guitar. Someone gets a djembe. Now, there was an old legend in that part of the world that Zeus and Hermes had come to the area disguised as travellers. And it was an ancient story, but it had been retold about 50 years before by the poet Ovid. Here's the story. Once upon a time, Zeus and Hermes visited a thousand homes dressed as travellers, and they were turned away. Finally, they went to the home of a poor old couple. In spite of their poverty, this couple welcomed the guests and treated them to a banquet that really stretched their wallet. And as a reward, the gods transformed their humble cottage into a temple with a golden roof and marble columns, and they changed the old couple into a priest and a priestess. And then they took their vengeance on the thousand other homes by destroying them. (laughs) Now, most people probably knew that legend. So you can see why there's such a wildly emotional response to the miracle. They want a piece of the action, and they probably want some buildings and contents insurance as well. Even the local priest gets in on the action. In verse 13... He comes bundling along with some bulls to sacrifice to these gods. He can probably see the pound signs in his eyes already because his temple is about to hit the big time. So everyone is charging down with the bulls. It's like the bull running in Pamplona. You know, they're all charging down with their acoustic guitar to worship Paul and Barnabas. Now, it's only at this point that Paul and Barnabas actually figure out what's going on because until now, the people have been shouting in the Lyconian language. They're probably thinking, what's happening here? But the moment they figure out what's happening, that they are being called gods, they are absolutely gutted. Look at what happens. They tore their clothes and rushed out into the the crowd, shouting. Now, they're doing everything they can to break up the party here. Tearing clothes. I won't do it. Spare you that. They expressed that you were really, really upset or offended. You don't tear your clothes every day unless you've got a really big wardrobe. Now, this is extreme kind of 
non-verbal communication. And they're shouting, friends, why are you doing this? And then they give this impromptu sermon on the spot in response to the situation. And they say this, what you are doing is spiritually deformed. And it is terribly serious to get things wrong about God. Verse 15, we too are only human like you. What you believe is wrong. They carry on. We're bringing you good news. Telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now this is hardly complimentary language, is it? Worthless things? Is that harsh? The word worthless basically means empty or useless. Paul and Barnabas are using straight talk. They do it respectfully. They say, friends, but they're very direct. Your ancestral traditions about Zeus and Hermes have no value when it comes to God. They are wrong. Now, we need to be careful here. In a later part of the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 37, there's another encounter of the gospel with the pagan world in the city of Ephesus. And on that occasion, a riot kicks off. A crowd is chanting, they're going mental, they're chanting for two hours. The city clerk is called in to try and calm things down. And he says, these men have not blasphemed our goddess. These men have not blasphemed our goddess. Evidently, they were able to hold a dialogue and speak in a way that was truthful and challenging without cussing or disrespecting or blaspheming another person's beliefs. But they are direct. And here in chapter 14, they say, these ideas are empty. Why? Because God is not like us. The living God is much, much bigger. To imagine that God could be somehow brought down to our level and turn up looking like a a couple of guys is a foolish mistake. He's not like us. He made everything that exists. The heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. Verse 15. Now, do you see what they just did? They're not arguing from a Bible because these people don't know the Bible. They're not arguing from philosophy because these people aren't the intellectuals. They're arguing from nature. And country people know nature. They live among the, the mountains. They see the sky. They, they feel the earth. They know the streams and the seasons. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, friends, come on. Think about it. Why would you assume that God was like us? Don't you see how bent out of shape that is? Even when God has done a miracle and they've had a true explanation, they twist it back to their own ideas. Do you see how naturally deformed we are? Now I need to speak to two audiences here today. The first audience is Christians. Guys, the good news is that we've been given great Good, life-changing news about Jesus. And it's the only way people can be rescued and forgiven by God. That means it must be at the centre of our lives. and It must be at the centre of our church. Grace Church is, I think, very warm. Not physically warm, as you can tell. Most people are shivering. But we're a warm, welcoming, community kind of church. We love the city. We're involved in it. In lots of ways. We're involved in helping clear local parks and pick up litter. We're involved in running a toddler group and visiting the elderly. We're involved in showing hospitality to internationals. We're involved in the allotments and making friends with people. But you know what? If we only make friends, if we only offer hospitality, and we never ever share the gospel, we have failed our friends 
We have not been true friends. We're not just running community initiatives as a church. They are also gospel initiatives. Let's never forget that. And notice too that this gospel is offensive. Nobody likes to be told that they are spiritually deformed. I remember when I first heard this, I felt upset and quite irritated. How dare you? It's not a message that's going to make you a lot of friends. But it is the truth of God. Christians need to hold their nerve and be gentle and courageous. There will always be a pressure to blunt the sharpness of the gospel and leave out the tricky bits. Let's beware that danger. But the other audience here today is people who are not Christians but are looking into it. And I need to say to you with a lot of respect, are you yet ready to admit that you've got it wrong as far as God is concerned? Are you ready to admit that your beliefs about God are actually wrong? That they are worthless things and that the gospel has brought you the truth? And if you're ready to admit that, you're very close to new life in Jesus. We are spiritually deformed, but an objection immediately comes to mind. If we're spiritually deformed and we can't do anything about it, then surely God can't blame me. And Paul and Barnabas anticipate this, and so, quick as a flash, they add a second point, just in case we're looking for some wiggle room to wriggle out of the implications. They say, here it is in verse 16, In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yes, they say, you've never heard about the living God. And you've never heard about Jesus. Right. That was in the past. But they immediately add a caveat. Verse 17. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Now what are they saying here? God has left plenty of evidence for us in nature itself that he exists. He's actually been really kind to us far more than we deserved. Now I know it may seem hard to conceive living in Manchester that rain from heaven is a kindness. But to people living in southern Turkey they like the rain. Without it their crops will die and they will die. They need the seasons to put the food on the table. And God gives plenty, says here. There's more than enough natural resource to feed billions of people. If only we would share it equitably. God blesses all people with joy, no matter who they are. In other words, you have no excuse for not following the living God. You have no excuse. You had enough evidence in nature itself to pursue him. If you didn't, that's your problem, not his. You've twisted the truth about God into your own version and you said, oh, well, I like to think about God as dot, dot, dot. And all the while you ignored the evidence that you had. And that is reprehensible. Here's what Paul says in a later letter that he wrote to Rome. The wrath or anger of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. We squash down the truth that we have. 
Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Funny thing to think that something invisible has been clearly seen. But that's what he says. What has been made, the world and ourselves, are enough evidence that we should have followed God. It's exactly the same thing that he says in his sermon in Lystra, just polished up a bit. We all know about God, and therefore we have no excuse for not worshipping him. Let me show you a picture. Helen Keller was born in Alabama in 1880. She was born with the ability to see and hear. But as a baby, at 19 months old, she contracted an acute illness, say the meningitis or scarlet fever, and it left her deaf and blind. Then, in 1887, she was a seven-year-old, Anne Sullivan entered Helen's life. Anne Sullivan began to teach Helen to communicate by spelling words into her hand, beginning with D-O-L-L, for the doll that she brought Helen Keller as a present. Keller was frustrated at first. She didn't understand that every object had a word that uniquely identified it. In fact, when Sullivan was trying to teach her the word for mug, she became so angry and frustrated that she broke the doll. But the big breakthrough came the next month when she realised that the motions the teacher was making on the palm of her hand while running cool water on the other hand symbolised the idea of water. And then she just went from strength to strength. She nearly exhausted Sullivan, demanding the names of all the other familiar objects in her world. Now, while Helen Keller was still a young child, Sullivan introduced her to a minister called Phillips Brooks. Brooks told her about Jesus. He introduced her to the gospel. And when she heard about God, Helen Keller communicated this. Is that who he is? I always knew he was there, but I didn't know his name. She was deaf blind. But she had a sense of the presence of God. We all do, but we all suppress it. We smother the spark. We are without excuse. We're spiritually deformed and we're spiritually accountable. What do you think of that? I told you it was going to be controversial today. This is the Bible's verdict on us, on our spirituality. We're deformed and we're accountable for the knowledge that we have. We're without excuse. Now, there are two possible reactions to this uh, news. Once the Lystran crowd figured out what was going on, they stoned Paul and left him for dead. In verse 19, they stoned him and they dragged his body out of the city and dumped him. Now that is a violent reaction to the gospel, isn't it? And it's rather fickle. I mean, a few minutes ago, they were worshipping him as a god. He's gone from hero to zero in record time. And that is how many people react internally when they realise the radical claims of the gospel. Please, let me beg you, don't, don't react like this. There's too much at stake. The gospel is the only way to escape the judgment of God, his, his right wrath against our sin. But there is another reaction. 
in verse 20, it says the disciples gathered around him. See, there were some disciples. Some had believed. Maybe the lame man was heading up the crowd. And Paul turned out not to be dead, but unconscious. He got up. Probably staggered back into the city. Incredibly, the next day, he and Barnabas made a 60-mile trip to Derby. One scholar said that Paul's route across Asia Minor was like a bleeding fox walking across the snow. He must have bled the whole way there. He had the scars on his body for the rest of his life. But the gospel drove him on. And there were disciples. Some believed. So let me just close by thinking with you about that lame man at the start of the chapter. He was lame from birth. He was crippled in his feet, I guess. Unable to move freely. Powerless to walk. Weak. Helpless. That is a picture of what we are all like, spiritually. We're all lame. Weak and helpless and powerless. And it is only by faith in Jesus Christ that the man was healed. And you can be healed too. Now we are promised physical healing in the future when Jesus comes back. Not now, it might happen, but it's not a promise. But your spiritual sickness, your spiritual deformity can be healed right now. And you can escape and be spared the wrath of God. And here's how it happens. Once upon a time, there was another man who the crowds loved and applauded. They hung on his every word. They worshipped the ground that he walked on. But that was another crowd who were easily turned. They bathed for his blood. They led him out of the city to death. Not by stoning this time, but by crucifixion. A far worse fate. And this man did not escape death. Far from it. He fully intended to die. His death was not merely a lynching, but a sacrifice. He was laying down his life for his friends and his enemies. And as he died, he prayed, Father, forgive them. And then he said, it is finished. He had paid the debt. But like Paul, this man who died got up. Same word. He rose from death and went back into the city. He was seen by many friends and followers over 40 days. They were witnesses, eyewitnesses to his bodily resurrection. His name is Jesus. And by believing in him and trusting your whole life to him and following him and putting aside your worthless conceptions, you too can be healed. So let me offer you Jesus today. Let me offer him to you. Let me offer not just the chance to be forgiven from your sins, but as Jez said earlier on, offer you Jesus, the the chance to be in relationship with him. Who to know is life in all its fullness. Will you trust him? I I was brought up in a a Christian home. I was taught the Bible from the youngest age. I got to my teens. I still didn't really know what it meant to be a Christian. I knew it all, but I didn't really know it. I remember one day sitting with a friend and saying, I just don't know what to do. And she said, well, you don't really have to do anything. You just have to trust him. Just pray, a simple prayer. So if you are at that point now and you want to trust Jesus Christ now, not put it off till later, will you pray with me? I don't have anything scripted. I'm just going to pray something simple in my words. 
and maybe you'll make them yours. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, I've lived life on my own terms and I've lived it for myself. I realize now that I've squashed what little truth I had in my heart about God so that I could please myself. And I'm guilty as charged. But I thank you that you came to save sinners like me. And so now I come to you as one of those people and ask that you would forgive me. Thank you that you died on a cross. Thank you that you shed your precious blood. Please accept me into your family. Amen.